If you've got a Bible, let's go to Genesis chapter 8, where we're going to be finishing the story of Noah today. Now, um, if you weren't here last week, uh, we looked at the reasons for the flood that we just heard about, and we really tried to set the record straight on this guy named Noah. So um, if you're thinking, like, why would God flood the world like that, or why does this guy Noah get a pass, you've really got to go back and look at last week's message, because the story of Noah and the ark Um, It is often a misunderstood story, but I think when you get down to what the Bible is saying, it's a really compelling story, because if there's hope for a guy like Noah, there's hope for you and me. Amen? That's how you know who was here last week. Awesome. Well, that's last week. Today, what we're going to do is we're going to finish the story of of Noah and the ark, uh, of really Noah and his family, by looking at what happens when they get off the boat. Are you ready? Genesis chapter 8, we'll pick up the story where the video left off in verse 13. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives. Every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and he offered them up as burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I I have done while the earth remains. Seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Okay, so the flood came just like God said it would. and, And we heard it in the scripture reading video that God carried Noah and his family safely through uh, the flood. And um, after more than a year on the boat, if you're like, what's up with all these dates? If you sit down with a pencil and piece of paper, if you can write it out, we see that they were on the boat um, for just around a year, just a little over a year. So put that in your imagination. After a year on the boat, after tossing and turning in the waves, I love the creaking in the video, just that, that kind of put it in 4D there. After a year of that going on, God says to Noah, hey, it's time to come out. It's over. Can you imagine that moment? Um, Karen and I, uh, we went on a cruise for our honeymoon, um, which is a great idea when your new bride gets seasick. Uh, I didn't know this, though, and I also didn't know we were going, like, during peak storm season. So we were on a boat. It was, like, for, like, five days, uh, not a year. That would have been fun. Um, but, and it was creaking and turning a lot like this. Now, um, I found that to be totally entertaining. I laid down at night, and I was like, it's like we have a waterbed. I've always wanted one. Karen was, like, on the verge of vomiting this entire trip. Um, and so we had very different experiences, but I'll tell you what we both felt when that boat hit dock is after a few days tossing and turning to put solid ground underneath your feet. It feels incredible. Have you ever been there on a boat and then you step on the solid land and it just, thank you, Jesus. Um, What's the first thing you would have done after a year on the boat? 
Kiss the ground. Yeah, that's a great answer. Um, some of you, if you're introvert, you would have ran as far away. You've been with these people for a year. You're done. You need some me time. Um, here's what Noah does. Noah builds an altar and he says thanks to God. Um, that's what all this talk about the clean animals and the unclean animals and making a burnt offering is about. Now, um, if you hear that and you're like, okay, if someone kills a cat and sticks it in the offering box after service, I'm out. Um, th- that's fine because we, we live in a different day. Noah is living in the ancient world under an old covenant. Like, this isn't how we do it anymore. So don't worry, this isn't going to end with like, and bring Fluffy to church next week. But this is Noah's way of saying God. This is how ancient people did it, even outside of Israel. And um, Moses, who wrote Genesis, will go on to write Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and kind of explain how the sacrificial system would work for Israel in the ancient world, where it was very common to worship the divine through animal sacrifices. Now, um, I I, I was going to go into that, but then I'm like, you know what? We're under the new covenant. Jesus has come, and that means we don't kill fluffy. That means we get to eat bacon, and that's why we love Jesus here. Amen? Amen. So here's the point of what's going on, though. Um, Noah's building this altar to say thanks to God. Offering these animals up is his way of worshiping God, of saying, hey, thank you for bringing us safely through the storm. You you, you told us you would. Now, day like 312, I, I was starting to doubt it, but in spite of my doubts, you brought us safely through. Thank you for bringing us safely through the flood. You were a good God. And it's so easy just to blow by this of Noah getting off the ark and um, building an altar to say thank you to God. But I, I want us to just pause and reflect on the first thing Noah does when he gets off the ark. Because how often do you stop to thank God for the good gifts he has given you? Um, I, I ask you that because I'm sitting with the text this week. And one of the things the Holy Spirit's highlighting to me is how often that I'm just future-oriented and driven. And it's so easy for me to be, go, go, go. Here's what's ahead. Here's what we're chasing down. That I forget to enjoy what God has given me in the present. Can anyone relate to this? I, I, I don't know. I was trying to imagine. It. I, was, I was like, if I was Noah, I might have gone off and built the second city and been all about that. And I love that Noah takes time to pause to thank God for his grace. Because what we see in the Bible is, if you can relate at all with me, this idea of for, just moving on so fastly from life, forgetting to thank God for his gifts, one of the things we see in the Bible is that thanklessness, according to Romans chapter 1, um, is really kind of at the center of all the problems in our lives. Now, now you might say, hey, I've got a lot bigger problem. I would just submit this to you, that unhappiness in our life isn't so much dictated by our circumstances, but according to the Bible, it's really um, primarily dictated by our praise, what our life is revolving around. And, and this should make sense to us by now. Remember what we saw in the opening chapters of Genesis. We saw that you and I were made to worship. Now, that word worship, it's a very churchy word, so I always wanted to define it. Worship is ascribing worth or praise to someone or something. So uh, we just had our staff and spouse's Christmas party on Friday, and we had just an excellent dinner. I mean, there was good food. And what happened at this party was you'd have people saying, this is incredible. you got to try this. This is so good. They're ascribing worth. That is worship that's going on there. Um, And the reason this is so fun to not just eat good food, but to say, hey, this food is really good, is because what the Bible has told us is that we were made to do this. Remember Genesis chapter 2, God took our first parents, and he said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, go and enjoy this good creation I made, have a good time, I want you to flourish, I want you to have fun. This is page 2 of the Bible. God says, enjoy all of these good things that I have made, and 
here's the key. Here's what so many people miss. What we see in Genesis, what we see in the New Testament, what we see across the Bible, is we're not just made to enjoy the good gifts, but we're ultimately made to have that enjoyment of a good steak um, or of a good dog or of a good relationship. It's meant to roll over into glad worship of the one who gave it to us. That's what we see in Genesis 1 and 2. The way we said it week two of this series is you and I were created to join the song of creation. That we're meant to see things like sunsets and dogs and um, butterflies and cats if that's your thing. And, And we're meant to see all of these good things and we're meant to enjoy them. And then that praise is meant to roll over not just to terminate on the dog itself, but to say thank you God for thinking this amazing creature up. You are such a good God. That's what we see in Genesis 1. That's what's going on with the rhythm. I know all the arguments are about, like, what does science and the Bible say? Um, But we spent significant time on this. This is a pre-scientific book, and it's telling us our purpose in life. And what Genesis 1 says is that you and I were made to join in this harmony of everything in the created order, working as God wants it, enjoying life as God has made it, and rolling over into glad praise. The picture we get in Genesis 1 is the sun, moon, and stars praise God, the birds above praise God, the animals on the ground praise God, and that you and I at the pinnacle of the created order are meant to enjoy all of these good things and to have that enjoyment roll over into glad worship to the giver of those things. So, so this is the harmony, Genesis 1 and 2. But the problem comes, so, so the idea is we're made to worship, not just worship generally, we're made to worship our creator. We're made to take all of these good things and say, thank you God for these good gifts. So we were made to worship our creator. That's Genesis 1 and 2. The problem, according to Romans chapter 1, occurs when we stop thanking God for his good gifts and we try to just worship the gifts in and of themselves. And we've seen this in Genesis. You get Lamech. He takes a good gift from God like marriage. And instead of saying thank you to God for that gift, what he says is, "Um, I've got a way to improve on this. I'm going to take not one wife, but two. And you know how that story goes. He treats them miserably. I don't think they liked him very much. Great evil comes from his family. And it's not just marriage. We do it all the time with all of life. And this is how you get Genesis 4, 5, and 6. In the words of Romans 1, when we cease to give thanks to our Creator... Our minds are darkened, and we begin to do foolish and foolish things that hurt other people. Maybe Lamech started off as a good guy, but his heart was darkened, and he started, Wives of Lamech, listen to me. And we've all done it. We have all had our minds darkened by not thanking God, by not worshiping God, and trying to worship the stuff he has made. This is how you get Genesis 4, 5, and 6. And into this mess of Genesis 4, 5, and 6, when the world is at the worst, it's all evil, all of the time, God graciously plucks out this guy named Noah, this random, regular old dude, out of that mess, and he gives him grace. He begins a relationship with him, and he begins to talk to him and tell him what's coming, and Noah trusts God and walks with God, and he gives him the boat, and he, um, by God's grace, survives the flood that comes upon the world. And the first thing Noah does when he gets off the boat, I want to really point this out, the first thing Noah does when he gets off the boat is he gives thanks to God for the good gifts of his grace. 
Guys, that's, that's significant. This is the Garden of Eden being restored. We're getting a glimpse of the life we were made for. That Noah, out of the muck and the mire of the life he was living, is pulled out by grace. And after God cleanses the world, we're getting a new creation and a new start for humanity. And it starts off very well. It starts off where the Bible did with humanity worshiping God and um, really finding happiness in him. Um, this is why... Uh, you know, I said earlier, your unhappiness, it's not so much dictated by your circumstance, but by your praise. This is why study after study after study will find that religious people tend to be happier than non-religious people. Now, that's not because religious people don't have issues. If you were here last week, we said, we've got issues just like everybody. The, the point is, and sociologists, they'll get so frustrated with this. Like, why is that? We want to try to explain this in some way. Um, the Bible's going to explain that to say it's because uh, someone that has a relationship with God has someone to thank for that beautiful dog they've been given. So it's one thing to say, um, hey, buddy, you're an awesome dog. It's another thing to be able to say to our creator, thank you for making this dog to make my heart sing, you're a good God. This is the life we're made for. This is where humanity flourishes. This is page one of the Bible. Everything's going awesome. It's a garden. They're naked. They're unashamed. You remember all of that? And here we get a glimpse of that on the other side of the flood. So it's, it's really beautiful. Noah gets off the ark. It's Eden restored, at least a glimpse. But then we get a really curious comment. God says this in, I believe it's verse 21. He says, And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma... Let me just point that out. So what we've seen so far is worship makes our heart happy. It's what we were wired for. It puts us in tune with our intended purpose. But worship also gladdens the heart of God, which is why I think worship is really, really cool. Um, when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, he's pleased by Noah's glad delight in him. The Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. Now, does that sound familiar to anybody? Yes. It's okay to talk to me here. Um, if, you, if you look back one chapter, or excuse me, two chapters, one page of my Bible to Genesis 6, this is the exact same thing God says before the flood. Humanity is evil. Their hearts are evil, even from their youth. It, this isn't something that happens later in life. This is something that's being passed down through the bloodstream. Humanity is broken. This was the reason for the flood. God looks at the world. He said, it's so busted. It's been 1,600 years. It's not getting better. Humans are getting worse and worse and worse. The thoughts and intentions of their heart are completely broken. And so God decides to wipe the evil injustice off of the earth with a flood. And then here on the other side of the flood... We get a new start for humanity. Noah is walking in the purpose for which he's made. He is flourishing. He is alive. He is glad to be on the ground and praising God for that ground. And then God says, I am so happy. And you know what? Because I know that humans' hearts are broken, I'm not going to flood the world again. Is anybody confused by this? Like, what's that? Right, it's the same thing now, it's after. Like what God is saying is, uh, this is a preview of what's coming in Genesis. The human condition has not fundamentally changed because of the justice God has brought to the world. Humans are still broken. 
But what's interesting is it's, it's the same reason. Um, the thoughts and intentions of their heart are only evil all of the time. So I'm going to wipe their injustice from the world. And then here on the other side of the flood, God says, you know what? The thoughts and intentions of their heart are only evil all the time. So I'm not going to flood the world again. If you're confused, let's keep reading. This is good Bible reading practice. If you're like, what in the world? Just keep reading. Oftentimes the Bible will continue and go on to explain. Verse 9, or excuse me, chapter 9, verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast on the earth and upon every birth of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and of the fish of the sea. Into your hands they are delivered. Every morning, uh, excuse me, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life in it, that is the blood, um, for And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God has been made in his own image. We talked about that verse when we did the image of God. If you're curious about that, we've got to keep moving. Verse 7. And you be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Is this sounding familiar to anyone? Now you're tracking with the program. Just say yes, that's probably a loaded question. But yes, this is Genesis 1 and 2. This is what God said in Eden. He's restoring his purposes. Be fruitful and multiply. Uh, Have a great time in this world I've made. Then verse 8, we read this. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I will establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds of the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Okay, this is a huge moment in human history. Um, What we just read is the first covenant that God makes with humanity. I feel like some of you are not as excited as I am about this. Uh, Let let me explain. Um, We don't talk a lot about covenants in church, so that reaction doesn't surprise me. But we should talk a lot about covenants. Because um, what you begin to see is is you read the whole Bible, not just select portions, but as you read the whole story, um, covenants are really at the heart of God's redemptive work in human history. And so there's five different covenants in the Bible. Um, I'm going to talk today about the Noahic covenant because that's where we are today, this covenant that God makes with Noah. Um, What a covenant is, is it's the promise of relationship. And so... um, In the Bible, you see uh, covenants made between God and man, like I mentioned, God and humanity. 
uh, like I mentioned, but then you'll also see covenants made between people like uh, King David and his buddy Jonathan will make a covenant with one another. Um, another example would be marriage is designed as a lifelong covenant in the Bible. Um, and, and so you see these Covenants between God and people, uh, and then there's also covenants between people. This is a common feature in the ancient world. In a covenant, two parties make binding promises about the relationship they will share to reach a common goal. That's the heart of a covenant. Two parties making binding promises about a relationship, that's at the heart, relationship they will share to reach a common goal. So um, here's how it works in a marriage. Uh, you have two people. I say marriage because I think we've all been to a wedding ceremony at some point. Um, and what you have in a marriage is you have two people who say, I'm in this thing. Come sickness or health till death do us part. These are the promises we make to one another. I am in this relationship. For what goal? To have a deepening of intimacy and safety and love. Everything we talked about in Genesis chapter 2 that marriage is made to be. Um, for some, uh, it is intimacy and love. And additionally, to raise a family together. Good premarital counseling will get you all on the same page about that. But, but this is the idea of a, a covenant. It's two parties coming together and saying, here's the relationship we're going to have. And it doesn't matter what comes. This is our relationship and this is our goal that we together will partner together for. Now, uh, let me say that some covenants are universal in scope, um, meaning they would apply to everybody, like the covenant we read about here in Genesis chapter 9. Um, most covenants are more limited in who they apply to. So to go back to the example of marriage, um, I'm married to Karen. Karen's my girl. Um, so here, here's what that means. I, I love all of you. I'm so happy to get to be your pastor. Uh, I'm for you, um, probably more than you know. But here's what I'll tell you. If push comes to shove, uh, my priority is Karen because there are two in our marriage covenant. And so you, you can't come to me and say, but pastor, till death do us part, like I didn't vow that to you. I vowed you I want to give my life here and we'll see what God will do. But I, I value that, vow, um, I covenanted that to Karen. See, see, our marriage covenant, it's limited to the two of us. And I tell this to our kids all the time. I love you. I'm for you. I'm so happy to be your daddy, but I hope you move out of the house someday. Not, not, not soon. Some of you are like, what in the world? Not soon. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> that's right. And, you know, and I'm even like trying to lay the groundwork. Like, where do you want to live? Somewhere tropical? Somewhere that doesn't rain that I could visit you lots? But, but that's the idea. It's like, um, hey, there's two in our marriage covenant. As important as our family is, my marriage covenant is limited to me and Karen. And so while the kids may move out someday, I don't have any plans for Karen to move out. Are, are you tracking with me? Some of you look like your eyes are glazing over. Okay, um, here's how all of this helps make sense of this story with Noah. God says to Noah, I'm going to make a covenant with you and with all of your offspring that come after you. So is this one universal or limited in scope? Universal. Unless your ancestors were mermaids and could like kind of swim around the ark and we just didn't read about them here. We all came from Noah and his family. So you know who's included in Noah's offspring? You, me, every human alive on the planet today. Um, what's interesting is even the animals get included in this. So dogs and, and even cats get included in this covenant. This is how gracious and good God is. He's like, ah, just throw them in there, sure. Uh, I love the cats. This is between God and all creatures on the earth. I apologize, that's ridiculous. Um, so, so, so it's a universal covenant. And now what promises are made in this covenant? Did you catch it? 
thinking I'm being tricky right now. Uh, no, I, I'm, I'm not trying to be. Like the promise is God says, I'm not going to flood the world again. Uh, no matter how bad it gets, no matter how evil you are, and trust me, I know where this is headed because God's never been surprised before. Um, no matter how much you reject me and rebel against me and bring evil and sin into my good world, never again will I flood the world. I'll never drown everyone in a flood ever again. That's God's promise. Now, um, what about the humans? What's our promise? We don't have one. That's the crazy thing about this covenant, the first one in the Bible. There's no promises on our side. See, the whole point of this covenant is God says, I know you humans are broken and you're going to sin and you're going to fail. And so because you can't change yourself, I am going to change how I relate to the world. So I'm promising now to never destroy the world again until my redemptive work comes to completion. As long as there is day and night, as long as history continues in this era, this covenant is guaranteeing that God will allow time to continue for the promise that we read about in Genesis 3.15 for an offspring of the woman to crush the head of the serpent and to undo what was lost in the fall and to bring us back to Eden. What this covenant does is it gives space for that redemptive plan to play out without all humanity being wiped out every single generation. That's the point of this covenant. Humans are going to sin, and God is going to be gracious and bless us anyway and allow life to continue until he brings the promise of Genesis 3.15 to completion because that's the point of this covenant. We're sinners, and God's a good God, and he's going to let this thing play out. Even though sin grieves his heart, he's going to give it time and time and time so that more and more people might come to know and trust Jesus who can actually save us from what is ultimately to come. Um, now, I, I've got a quote here from Walter Moberly that I think frames this really well. Uh, he's British, so if you're like, I'm not understanding you, uh, this will be smarter, okay? You ready for it? This is what Walter Moberly says about these things. He says this, The flood story's overall emphasis remains the Lord's resolution to sustain life on earth in the future. This resolution, however, is a paradoxical expression of merciful divine forbearance in the face of the recognition of human life post-flood as no improvement over human life pre-flood. Humanity remains undeserving of the gift of life in a regular world order, but the gift will be given nonetheless. What he's saying in his very British and intelligent and sharp way right there is that the story of Noah is not ultimately a story of judgment, but of grace. That yes, there is judgment in the story. We talked about that last week. Judgment did occur, um, but that's not the part that should surprise us. The part that should surprise us is that it hasn't happened again, because we know what the text says, that humanity doesn't seem much better today than it did in the days of Noah. Jesus even said it this way, like, hey, the day that I return, it's going to be a lot like the days of Noah, which is a lot like the days of now. Humanity hasn't improved, and so um, the fact that the world continues to go on in spite of human evil and injustice and the suffering and the evil we see around us needs some explanation, and this is where we get it. The reason that God has not done this again is he has promised, he has made this commitment, he has established a relationship with everyone. Here's what's crazy about this. Even if you hate God, you're a part of this covenant. 
And that might drive you crazy, but what God's saying is, I'm giving you breath right now. I'm giving you life. I'm giving you time. This is the covenant that God, in his great grace, looks at our sin that grieves him and says, I am going to look over their sin for a time to give them time to repent, to come to faith in Jesus, to find life in his name. And what we read in the New Testament, if you're like, why would God do that? The New Testament says God's kindness, it's always meant to lead to repentance. It's always redemptive. He's giving time because he wants you to come to know him. So that's what's going on in the Noahic flood, that no matter how bad humanity gets, God says he will never destroy the world with the flood again. There might be a big storm here and there. Like, I, 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 I've thought about that, like, on the news. You'll, you'll see, like, maybe a, a regional flood where someone could drown, and that is tragic, but that's not what the text is talking about here. The text is talking about um, this massive decreation event that would um, sweep up humanity as we know it, and what God is saying is, I will not wipe out the whole world with water again. It doesn't matter how much you sin. doesn't matter how bad you are. I'm not going to do that again. And we read this thousands of years later. I think we hear it differently than the original audience would have heard it. I just want you to try to put yourself in the shoes of the people that Moses is writing these words to. Uh, we talked last week. The people of Israel lived in a world where other cultures were asking questions. Like, what happened in that, that flood that killed all the ancients? They were aware of some event. They're trying to make sense of it. And then what Israel has also just seen is they've just seen God in the Exodus part the Red Sea and marshal the forces of creation to push back the demonic and oppressive forces of Egypt and to bring his people out into freedom. So they've just seen that their God controls the wind and the waves and creation itself. They've heard about some flood in the past. Do you think any of the Israelites, when they sinned and rebelled against God and saw a rain cloud in the sky, were like, oh no, not again! What God's saying here is, no, not again. Not because you're awesome. I know that you're broken, but no, not again, because I have made this one-way promise to you that no matter how bad you get, I'm not going to wipe out the world with a flood again. You can bank on it. And he wants them to bank on it so much, he not only gives them his word, he gives them a sign. Now, now this is how covenants often work, that when you make a covenant— um, you will have a sign or a symbol or some sort of outward um, way to represent the promise of relationship that's been made. So to go back to our marriage example, sorry if you're sick of that, uh, in marriage, what is the sign or the symbol of the marriage covenant? A ring. Uh, in the church, what is the sign or symbol of the covenant? This one could actually be controversial, but we're all good Baptists here. It's baptism. I, I, Sorry, if you're not a Baptist. I, some people dunk babies. We dunk believers here. We're, we're all team Jesus here. Um, but the, the point is, and I guess either way that would kind of be baptism. It's just you dunk a baby or an adult. Anyway, we're off train. What I will say is some of you have come to faith in Jesus and haven't been baptized yet, and we would love to help you celebrate that outward sign of the inward reality that God has worked in your life. So um, sign up for baptism, and if you like to dunk babies here, we're glad you're here, and we do baby dedications, and we'd love to minister to you as well. Um, so, <laughs> wow, that one did not go as expected. Okay, go back to the wedding thing. The wedding ring. We got a sign that reminds us that um, these are the promises we have made. What is the sign of the Noahic covenant? A rainbow. Um, and it, what God says is, 
I put my bow in the cloud to be a sign to remind you of my grace and my kindness. That no matter how much you sin in fear, oh no, have we brought the judgment of God early upon us. You can look up to the clouds and know I'm not going to expedite your death ever again. Your sin will eventually lead you to death, but I am not going to expedite the process. I'm going to give you as much life as possible to come to repentance. So God puts the rainbow in the sky to remind them of his kindness and his grace and his love for every living creature upon the face of the earth. Now some of you are like, that's not what I was taught the rainbow means. Um, Let's talk about that. Um, Our oldest loves rainbows. She, I don't know if it's a phase or if it's just her personality, but she really loves rainbows. If you ask her what her favorite color is, um, we, we had some friends over and she said five, and then she started listing them. And it's all the colors of the rainbow. I was like, way to get a lot of bang for your buck there. Um, here's a, I brought with me a picture that she drew, a self-portrait of her and I. This is me on the, uh, your right. Um, it's, it, this is me on the right here, my left. Um, I'm in green because that's my favorite color. Uh, and apparently in my daughter's eyes, we're about the same height. Um, and apparently I didn't skip leg day, but I might have skipped arm day. Um, now, uh, Maddie has drawn herself in her favorite color here, a rainbow, because she loves rainbows right now. It, she's all about them. And um, what's interesting is um, these are in my office. These are in our house. We had some friends over when, they said, when she said the rainbow answer. This can like wig Christians out because they're like, do you know what that means? And I'm like, yeah, do you? We're big Noahic Covenant fans here in this house here. And, and so let me just say this, because um, I, I, I know I'm, I'm stepping on some sensitive space. Um, if you are in the LGBTQ community, or if you have kids or just people in your life that you love who are, here's what I want to clearly say. Uh, we see you, and we love you here. And and more importantly, God sees you, and God loves you, and just like everybody else who has ever lived, he wants to lead you into the fullness of life. So I don't say this to take any dignity away from you or the people that you love that see the rainbow as meaning something else, but what I will say is the rainbow is so much better than you know. The meaning of the rainbow is so much more life-giving than what we hear preached in our culture that we hear it taught that the rainbow says your sexual orientation makes you special. And what we see in this text is, no, 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 something much more deep and fundamental about you makes you special, and that is the fact that you are made in God's image, and you are special, and you are loved by him simply by the fact that he created you to image him in this world. And this is far more inclusive. This is far more expansive. This includes far more people to say it this way. And and I press on this because um, oftentimes Christians shrink back when we see a rainbow. And I'm like, no, that one's been given to us for a reason. We can't punt on this. Now, we shouldn't be crusty about it or we shouldn't be rude. But what the Bible says, and this is something we can communicate to people that we love that believe something different about the rainbow to be able to communicate that the Bible says that God has built this colorful reflection of light into the clouds to scream of his love for you day after day, no matter how far you run from him, no matter uh, how much you rebel, the rainbow is God's promise that he's going to bless you anyway and give you this gift called life so that like Noah, you might come to know the beauty of his love firsthand. And, And I just think that's a lot... 
more beautiful of a message. And this one part of who you are makes you special. What the rainbow says is, no, you're whole. you are valued to God. And he loves you more than you could ever imagine. And so I, I, I really believe, church, we've got to recover a good theology of the Noahic covenant and the meaning of the rainbow because we're going to see them all over. And here's what I want you to do. Next time you see a rainbow on a bumper sticker or on a t-shirt, because it like never rains in California. So when you see it on a bumper sticker or a t-shirt, here's what I want you to think, and I'll stand on the word of God and say this. You should think, God loves me, God is gracious to me, God is kind towards me, and here's the thing, and he loves them, the person wearing that bumper sticker, the person wearing that t-shirt, God infinitely loves them as well, even if they think the rainbow means something else. That's what we should see when we look at the rainbow. Because here's the thing, this is not just a covenant with Christians, right? This is a covenant with all the humans, even with the animals. So I I guess if you're a PETA lover, you could really stretch this one and see the rainbow and be like, that one's ours. Well, it's kind of God's, but it, it applies across the board. God loves you. He loves your dog. We talked about this earlier in Genesis. He loves you more than your dog, but that doesn't mean he doesn't love your dog. The rainbow is God's commitment. To say like we said when we lit the Advent candle this morning, for God so loved the world. There's no qualifiers on that. It's not for God so loved the godly people that cleaned themselves up and got to church and struggled with the acceptable sins, not the unacceptable ones. What the rainbow says is for God so loved the world. This is not a New Testament invention. This is not an invention that begins at the coming of Christmas. This is what God has been saying from the very beginning all humanity. I love you. I want you to have life. And it is that love that John 3, 16 tells us will ultimately compel God to send his son to save us. But, but that gets into another covenant. I want to talk about the Noahic covenant. Here, here's my point. Um, the rainbow is God's proclamation that he loves the whole world. And without being grouchy, church, without being Crouchy, we have to find a way to reclaim the beauty of this symbol for everyone that we're in relationship with. Because God did not give us the rainbow for no reason. God gave us the rainbow as a sign of this covenant to help us remember the promise he has made. And what what we're going to see now in the final story about Noah's life is we're going to see why it's so important to have signs and symbols to remind us of what God has promised us. Let's now look at the final story of Noah's life. Chapter 9, verse 18. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the sons of Noah, and from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine, and he became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, he saw the nakedness of his father, and he told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, and they laid it on both of their soldiers, excuse me, shoulders, and they walked backwards, and they covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backwards, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and 
let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Kind of a weird final scene to this great, this great man of faith life. Um, but I believe it's a deeply important one. And before I share why, um, hook that onto the side, we need to talk about the actions of Shem, or excuse me, of Ham. Um, let me just say this about the actions of Ham in this text. Um, a lot of debate, there is a lot of debate going back to like rabbis before the timing of Jesus, debating exactly what he has done here. Um, I think one commentary is really helpful. It's like, man, God doesn't seem to give all the details. The point seems to be what happened. But there's a lot of debate around what Ham done, had done. Now, if you can believe it, people take an unclear text, and um, people actually tried to use this text much later on. This was not debated early on, but much later on, people actually tried to use this text to justify slavery in this country. And it was wicked, and it was foolish, and it was wrong, but it was sinful people who, um, because if you're like, how do you get slavery from that text? That's because you're paying attention. Slavery ain't in that text. It's not in that text. But what happens is sinful, foolish, false teachers want to justify their sin, and they try to baptize it with the Bible. And if you can't tell, I get a little angry about this. Um, Because what happens when false teachers twist the scriptures as good people get confused by it, and they go, oh my goodness, is that what the Bible says? And, and so, gosh, I'm hot about this. Um, I had a couple of pages in my notes to talk about what happened with Ham. Um, because I'm convinced that the solution to bad Bible teaching is not to throw the Bible out, but it's actually good Bible teaching. Um, if you get in there, the, the fools that taught this didn't know Hebrew, and they dang sure didn't know simple rules of interpreting a literary text. It is not a good interpretation. I had a couple of pages of notes where I was just going to walk you through, here's what's actually going on there, and this is why that's sinful, and here's all the places the Bible says that's sinful. Um, but let me just say this. I also recognize that's a hobby horse of mine. And so if you're interested about the sin of Ham, I want to invite you, ask about it in the Q&A. Uh, we don't have to fear questions of the Bible. If you have real questions about it, bring it because there is a reasonable answer. It never justified slavery. And there is a simple way to see that as you look well at the text. So if you're interested, I could outline you the arguments and then tell you why they're bad and what the text is really saying. And frankly, if you have other questions about things you've heard the Bible says that have made you wonder, I want to invite you to send that into the Q&A because I always want to be, this to be a place where we can step in where there's been bad Bible teaching and have good Bible teaching and show us the goodness of our God and King. So um, without going further, I, I need to kind of move this sermon on. Did I say nothing in the text justifies that? Yes, I did. Um, for the point of eventually, <laughs> this is what I wrote in my notes, for the point of eventually landing the plane, uh, let me keep the main thing the main thing here. Ham did something that was sexually perverse. There's no debate about that. Um, and Moses, he, he does something very interesting that, again, there's no debate about. He just kind of drops it in there that Ham was the father of Canaan. Uh, now, the Canaanites, if you know your Old Testament, these are one of the main enemies of God's people throughout the Old Testament. Uh, the people of Canaan have a special, like, 
if humans are broken and evil and a mixed bag of good and evil, the Canaanites, as we see them in Scripture, are particularly evil. Their society was so filled with evil and injustice that they actually celebrated child sacrifices to demons. These are not good guys. These are not just normal, flawed humans. These are bloodthirsty, kill their baby. I mean, these are not the guys you want to be in the Old Testament. And Moses just drops it in there. He's like, hey, you know Ham? Well, he was the father of Canaan. What he's saying is, you know all that evil and injustice that grieves your heart and grieves the heart of God? That all traces back here to the last thing we read about Noah's life. And here's where this should encourage you. Are you feeling encouraged? Wow, someone is. Okay, wow, I'm going to keep playing it on because I do think this should encourage us and maybe you know where I'm going with this. Is I, think, um, I think we all have this tendency to believe that grace is just something that, yeah, maybe I need grace to get in the Christian life like Noah did in Genesis chapter 6, but I think we have this tendency to believe that once I become a Christian, I need grace less and less and less the longer that I walk with Jesus. Now, most of you would never say it that way. I surely wouldn't. But my experience as both a pastor and a Christian is that we tend to functionally believe this. That we, um, yeah, sure, maybe I was a mess when I first got saved, but I've been a Christian for several years now. And I've gotten better and better and better. And so I don't need all that grace, like all those sinners out there. I just need like a little bit of grace. Just just a little bit. I used to need a lot, and I only need a little bit. And I think we believe this, and I think that we go, this is why we get so frustrated with ourselves when our lives don't match that narrative. We go, man, how do I still struggle with this? What's wrong with me? I can't believe I'm still doing this. It's been years of following Jesus. How have I not conquered this sin? How am I still wrestling with that? And if you've ever felt that way, might I present Noah? Noah was a righteous man, right? Yes. We read this in Genesis chapter 6, verse 9. He was a righteous man. He walked with God. Here's what we saw last week. He spent 120 years building an ark when there had been no reason to believe there was a flood. So, so let me just say it this way. More righteous than you and I will ever be. This guy devoted his life to crazy acts of faith, building this ark. Noah was a righteous man. He is lifted up as a hero of the faith in the New Testament. And yet here, the last thing we read about his life is that after he gets off the boat and thanks God and has a good day, he got uh, blackout drunk, had a bad day, and some really shady stuff happened in his family that affected his offspring for generations. Here's the point. Noah did not grow beyond his need for God's grace, and neither do you. It is God's grace that gets us into the Christian life, and we're sinning like everyone else and have no desire to follow Jesus. It's God's grace that opens our heart to see the beauty of the gospel, and we say, I'd love to follow you. You'll be gracious. I'll bring the sin. You bring the grace, and you'll transform me into someone that can actually do useful things like build an ark. Like, yes, please. So it is grace that begins the Christian life, and it is grace that fuels the Christian life and drives us to crazy acts of obedience, like building an ark when everyone's laughing at us for 120 years. It's grace that does that. It's grace that drives us, and it's grace that picks us back up when we get blackout drunk in the tent and embarrass our whole family and cause great grief and great shame for many generations in our family. It's grace that picks us back up and said God knew what he was buying when he made the covenant. 
He knew you were broken. He didn't have any delusions about how you would finally figure it out. He, in full view of your sin, sent his son to die in your place for your sin so he could say, you're forgiven, you're loved. I know you're going to struggle, but I love you anyway. It is grace that picks us up again and again as we stumble in our walk with Jesus. And hear me, it is only grace that will one day lead us home. Noah's whole story is grace from beginning to end. And this is, church, this is why we need signs like the rainbow to remind us of God's love. This is why we don't just punt on something beautiful God has given us. Because we are forgetful creatures. And when we sin and have a bad day like Noah is recorded having here at the end, it's so easy to begin to doubt. It's so easy to think, surely God's fed up with me. Surely I've gone on too far this time. And you need to hear this. That kind of guilt that beats yourself up does nothing to glorify God when Christ has already paid for your sin. Godly grief is meant to lead us to repentance. It says, that's not the life I want. Jesus, thank you for dying for that sin. And I want to, by grace, get back up and walk with you again. That's the kind of repentance that brings God glory and us joy. It doesn't help anybody if we beat ourselves up and go, I need to clean myself up before I come back to God. And this is where reminders like the rainbow, lighting up the sky in color, can say, you haven't gone too far. If you are not dead yet, you are not done yet, is what the Noahic covenant says. There is still time to repent. And where this is ultimately heading is the Noahic covenant is not the last covenant God makes. We eventually get to the new covenant, which is the final fulfillment in Christ. And what the new covenant says is with bread and wine or grape juice, however Baptists want to do it, with bread and a cup, it's saying you haven't outsinned the cross of Christ. You may have surprised you. You didn't surprise God. That sin is covered. And so don't wallow in what Christ has paid for. Get up. Believe the gospel. Receive God's love right where you need it most. This is why we need reminders. Because when we fail, our tendency is to beat ourselves up. We have an enemy we read about in Genesis 3 that wants to beat us up and to push us down. We live in a world that tells us that in order to be loved, you have to clean yourself up. You have to make yourself special. You have to become. We've got the world, the flesh, and the devil all working against us. And so God gives us powerful signs with each covenant, like the rainbow, like communion, to say, to scream through all of the nonsense, I haven't changed my mind about you. I'm for you. I love you. Grace started this thing. Grace is going to get you home wallowing this does nothing to bring God glory. What brings God glory is to open our hands to receive his grace and to, like Noah, live our lives as a living sacrifice that says, God, thank you for saving me. I can't believe you're not sick of me. I'm sick of me. Thank you for being a good God. I love you, God. And and I'm telling you this from experience. If you haven't tasted this, my prayer is that you would taste this before the year is out. It has been my experience, both personally and as a pastor, that is when you see God's unmerited love, his powerful grace extended to you in the space where you think you least deserve it, that is where your worship will be most sweet, most profound, and your praise will take on a new level. And remember how we started the sermon. It's when we're 
worshiping God and praising him for what he's done, that we are most alive. So you want to be most alive? You've got to taste God's grace where you need it most, and your praise will run deeper, your joy will expand greater. And that's why we need these signs, to help us remember so that we can experience his grace where we need it most, and that we could sing more powerfully with our lives the wonders of our great God and King that gives us life. And and I believe that we get a glimpse of that at the very end of this very, very strange story. Noah wakes up and he realizes what happened to him. With, uh, he realized what happened with Ham and he pronounces this, uh, this incredible word of prophecy. What he says is, through his son Shem, God will push back the darkness of the world that we see in Canaan. And, and, and that's really the summary of what we see as the Old Testament continues on. Really much of the Old Testament from this point on um, will be the offspring of Shem, that'll be the Israelites, uh, fighting with Canaan's offspring. Um, And and there's some highs for the people of God in that. There's a a man named King David who's a particularly excellent offspring of uh, Shem who goes into the pits of darkness where they were sacrificing children and he beats down the city gates and he wipes the city clean of injustice and evil and that city becomes the city of Jerusalem, the city of God that gets the temple in the place of the greatest darkness in the world. God sends his greatest light to show the world what he is like to bring justice and love and kindness and peace to the ends of the earth. But if you know your Bible, King David, he ultimately proves to be just like Noah, a man who has, yes, he has faith in God, so he does great things, but he also is a broken man because he is a human and his heart has evil in it. And so he's not fully able to cleanse the world of evil. In fact, he contributes to it himself in some very profound ways. And on and on and on the story goes. And it's really tragic. Where Israel gets, spoiler alert here for your Bible reading plan next year. Israel's going to get so evil that God says, you're worse than Canaan. Israel will practice child sacrifice. It gets very, very bad, very, very evil, and so God casts them out of the land. And then, after years of wandering, is God done with us? Is the covenant over? Did, Did we go too far this time? God sends a baby to be born in the city of Bethlehem to scream to the world louder than the rainbow ever did, I love you. I am for you. And in the life of Jesus Christ, we finally see a human in whom there is no evil. Because, spoiler there, he's not just a human, he's the God-man. And as he lives a perfect life, he does goodness and kindness to everyone who ever comes into contact with him. Even a Canaanite woman. Guys, you can't make this stuff up. The Bible's so cool. In Matthew 15, verses 21 to 28, a Canaanite woman comes to Jesus and she says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. What she's saying is, I recognize the evil in me, but there's something different about you. You're not like me. You're the one Noah was talking about that said that he would put the evil of Canaan underfoot and bring God's kingdom to restore this world. You're the one, she says. And Jesus goes on to not only heal her daughter, which was her presenting issue, but he goes on to die on the cross in her place for her sins to not only make her life a little better in the short term, but to give her the eternal life that she 
had ultimately longed for. She wasn't just looking for mercy from her suffering. She was looking for mercy from her sin. And when she says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. A Canaanite woman coming to a descendant of Shem. I don't know what she was expecting, but Jesus in that moment doesn't say, you're a Canaanite, you're not my people, get out of here. He marvels at her faith. He marvels at her faith. And this is why he heals her daughter. This is why he goes to the cross. This is why he gives her what she was really asking for. Because here's the point. We are all, all humans, all breathing things, beneficiaries of the Noahic covenant. But Jesus has made a way for us into a greater covenant. One that not only extends life in a broken Genesis 3 world, one that actually has the power to redeem and to renew and transform the world where once enemies can be reconciled under the banner of the rule of a greater and kinder king than this world has ever known. This is where I said earlier wicked fools had twisted the words of this story to mean something it never meant. But then you get beautiful hymns in Christian history that say the slave is our brother. The Bible has told us all along this is wrong. When Jesus is king, life gets restored to what it should be. It's when we start worshiping stuff like profit margins and success that we treat one another awfully. And so Jesus comes to bring his kingly rule to the earth to wipe away the injustice, to wipe away the evil. And I said last week, that would mean wiping us away if not for the cross, where Jesus is wiped away on our behalf. And he rises again and he inaugurates a new covenant with a better symbol than even the rainbow. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to end service by remembering that covenant and tasting of that symbol together. But before we do that, I just want to give us some space to reflect. And so as the band comes up, we're going to sing a song together um, that I just prayed would give you space to reflect and ask Where do I need to receive the grace of God in my life today? Where is the space that you most need it? Where is the spot that you feel most broken that you're like, if anyone knew this about me, I can't imagine what would happen. Where do you need the grace of God most today? Because what we see in this story is when we remember God's grace for us, where we most need it, our worship soars to new heights and we can flourish and walk in the type of life that we were made for and that Christ came to redeem. And so we're going to sing this song, and I just want to invite you to ask. I don't even know where you're at with Jesus, but if you're here just processing these things, maybe think about what in your life feels dark? What in your life do you feel like, I wish people didn't know this about me? And then I'm going to come up, and we're going to take communion together for all who have trusted in this covenant to celebrate that that sin has been paid for. So let's take this time to reflect, and then I'll come back up, and we can take communion together.